You're listening to the New Century Multiverse. Arlington Remastered. Chapter 11 The Scribe. Thomas Arlington, District of Columbia, March 2nd, 1883. Mr. Raven, it's nice to finally meet you. Just Raven. Is that a pseudonym? A pen name? Part of your tribal heritage? It's the only name I've ever had that matters. Mind if I smoke? By all means. Are you scared? <sighs> nope. Be honest. I always am. And what was the best you thought was going to happen after publishing this story? I might ask you the same thing. I'm sure your honest answer would be enlightening. You have quite the following in D.C. What I do is not illegal. I have constitutional freedom of speech. Freedom of the press. Grant hasn't amended that yet. Would you kindly... Read your article out loud, please. You haven't read it yet? For the recording. Mm, sure, I'll be happy to. <laughs> we need to talk about Thomas. Washington is changing. You can... You can smell the tension in the air. The people are feeling the overwhelming weight of their national responsibility setting in as the honeymoon of renewed pride fades. <clears throat> They're looking for someone to blame for the hardship. Now it's easy to point to the Wendigo and call that the beginning of the transformation or even the deforming of America. But in truth, this metamorphosis began centuries ago and will undoubtedly continue into our future. I write this the morning after Thomas Arlington, director of the National Intelligence Agency and author of the Cartographer's Handbook, published the second edition, and in doing so proclaimed his Negro heritage. This is a hellishly bold statement of intent, beyond what most of his detractors would have given him credit for. There is an incalculable streak of racial hatred coursing through the heart of America. Some 263 years ago, the white man was a visitor to these shores, fleeing a country whose ruling body he considered tyrannical. In that short space of time, he has beaten the American Indian back from their long-established territories, dragged millions of Africans away from their homeland in order to work their cotton fields, seen off the British, looking to draw them back into the fold, and claimed independence as a new country altogether. The American white man has climbed to the top of the heap, trampling on all other races and nations to do so. And so, naturally, there is festering guilt. But while that victory brought out the best in us, the worst is still there. And that guilt, intermingled with fear and insecurity, is a dangerous mix. To collectively learn for absolute certain that a former slave is now in charge of shaping the future could spell ferocious repercussions for this administration and its fledgling intelligence agency. The irony of a yoke of oppression being placed around the necks of former slave owners by a man born in chains will be burning white hot in the streets of the District of Columbia. 
As part Iroquois, part Scottish, I myself am emblematic of an uneasy mix of cultures. I would never have existed without all of the above occurring. I was alive to see the country torn in two, as brother fought brother. The slaves were granted their freedom, and we all attempted to adapt to the world we were left with then, some of us more than others. I was witness to the coming of the Wendigo, and the disintegration of our society. I sat huddled in the shelters, scribbling my newsletters, waiting for someone to stand up and take control. And I reported on the victory as we marched on the capital and set about re-establishing our dominance. Arlington's own account of this is powerful, personal stuff, especially when it is used as proof of concept that we can come back from ruin intact and ready to take on new challenges. This reassurance is what most of us hunger for. In a simplified version of events, we look at a nation divided and see one side of the conflict, a human face, tired, scarred. But continuing to fight with all that true American grit, that indomitable frontier spirit. Davy Crockett with a white scarf. On the other side, you have the Wendigo. A weird and savage reflection of the darkest, hungriest heart of man. That speedy, feral movement that continues to unnerve considering the building blocks of their bodies came from our own. Flared, orange eyes, and insatiable hunger that occupies our nightmares. They are, as Arlington points out, named for an Algonquin legend intended to discourage us from falling back on our most self-serving instincts, which puts their opposition in the place of the selfless cooperative working towards a future for everyone. But that's not the true picture of things. In reality, our human face is fractured, divided, at odds with itself. Its ethical code and priorities are scattered as its geographical relationship. It is clearly Arlington's intention to mend that fractured visage, unite American humanity in a common cause, to give us that simple conflict of two forces. In doing so, however, he has had to disseminate a mode of thought that conglomerates all others, trimming away all non-essentials until we are acting as a painstakingly organized machine. It requires a fresh perspective, a grand course of action on a scale we had not experienced until recently, certainly not enough that it would require a name. Total war. Now, warfare has existed longer than mankind. It was civilized as a concept some millennia ago, and the delineation between those who were warriors and those who were not was drawn. Some would fight. The rest would tend to the home fires and ensure there was something to fight for. Total war is what happens when every single one of us is fighting. Every civilian is as committed as the soldiers to laying down their life in order to turn the tide of conflict, to sustain that determination and ultimately achieve a victory. In the second edition, we have now learned of poor Lieutenant Buckner, enduring his horrifying metamorphosis into a wendigo and yearning for the possibility of immunity. And everyone alive today, above a certain age, remembers what life was like back in the first months of the plague. The relentlessly self-invested, hiding their bites from their companions, all convinced they were special, or that a cure might be found, or else simply so overwhelmed by their impending fate that they refused to face up to the grim eventualities. Each of these men and women and children transformed, became horribly dangerous to those around them, lost their minds, and attacked with frenzied aggression to further spread their infection, fled 
to the safety of the woods and caves of the American wilderness, or else met their end at the hands of the ones who loved them. We're a different people now. That ignorance has been replaced by a wearied familiarity. The bitten rarely hide and almost never run. The ramifications for their loved ones are simply too ominous. Everyone walking the earth today is doing so for a reason, be it practicality or cunning or brutality or luck, or simply being surrounded by others who possess one or more of these traits in abundance. Arlington briefly touches on the recent incident that sparked the debate over immunity, an uprising in Jonestown, Ohio, which took place last month. What he omits is the 17 townspeople shot dead by RSA troops as they quelled the violence arising from a scarred bite. Now, this reporter is not levelling allegations of military brutality or catastrophic heavy-handedness at the feet of the cartographer scouts running that particular unit. He is not implying that their negotiation skills are clearly dangerously lacking or that the fact that their identities have been classified and that their whereabouts are unknown looks suspicious from the outside. Nope. All that should be painfully obvious already. This paints a darker picture of Arlington's America. In the interest of balance, it appears the Jonestown people were none too keen on joining the fight, and the aggression levels on either side were at breaking point when the shots began. The issue of immunity was merely the catalyst. Neither is it the responsibility of cartographers to avoid violence at any cost. Part of their remit is, after all, quelling uprisings and secessions, but the blurred line between angry people who do not wish to take part and active aggressors out to murder our troops is where the heart of this issue lies. Seven months ago, in the first edition, Arlington laid down the following argument. While the fiercely sought independence many of our detractors hold to may be admirable in certain lights, what they are plainly saying with this rebellion is the following. I will not join the fight to save America from the Wendigo. I will murder any man who tries to make me. Now this assessment disturbs me more than any other passage in the handbook. Firstly, it's an informal fallacy, putting words into the mouths of all non-allies, who by extension become perceived enemies. Secondly, it conglomerates, just as efficiently as the handbook does, with our infinite personal motivations to unite the manifold reasons of everybody abstaining from this war effort, with just as little attentiveness to personal detail. Under this binary mode of thinking, you were either with us or you were against us, effectively making this conflict a three-way fight between the reunified states, those that will not unify, and the Wendigo. But even that is too simple. The reality would in fact be face after face of humankind encircling the Wendigo, divided and subdivided, unable to properly reconcile our differences and coalesce in order to form an equal opponent. In our failure, we are preyed upon daily by the beast at our center. And that is the price of our individuality. And that is clearly an even greater enemy for Arlington than any amount of creatures lurking in our silent, overgrown cities. Total war is an inhuman and exhausting state of being. What worries me is that Arlington believes we can sustain it as a people, seemingly indefinitely, 
There is no given time scale in his tome regarding how long we must maintain this. And quite apart from that, if this is achievable in five years, or ten years, or seventeen, just in time for the next century, what will become of our people after the Wendigo is gone? Now, General Curtis wrote of Clem, the survivor, found on these very streets when Washington was retaken, how on being told he could stop fighting and rest, he passed away in his sleep, his mind and body surrendering its life with the daily struggle to survive no longer a requirement. Arlington is manifestly a shrewd man, and must have considered what that entailed when set on a grander scale. If Arlington's dream comes to pass, and all people living today in America are united by inspiration, coercion, or by force, on the day the last Wendigo falls, what will happen then? What will drive us to not lay down and rest forever at that point? See, by then our nation will have to be strong and warlike, its government likely content to commit small-scale atrocities in pursuit of the greater good. Our survival now assured we will have no other choice but to turn our eyes to the rest of the world. At that stage, will we be the kind of nation that closes its borders to guard against all outsiders? Alternatively, will we be the kind that journeys there to take for ourselves that which makes us stronger, more mighty, more powerful, more unbeatable? Will we in fact be a steel empire that nobody, even the Wendigo, can stand against. It's hard to say whether Director Arlington is naively banking on being able to inspire every one of us with the same togetherness rhetoric, or laying his chips on the notion that it is better to be by the devil's side than in his path. Despite all of that has been said so far, I admire the principles of the director, particularly his courageous adherence to transparency. It would appear he has fought in the past to come out to the world as black, and been prevented from doing so by a cautious White House. I would urge him to continue along these lines and keep the dealings of the NIA out in the sunlight for public scrutiny. It is the only way to stave off the inevitable corruption and blackmail that arises when a person in a position of extreme power has something to hide. In closing... The sweeping romance of Catherine Holloway's new section in the handbook has already captivated the hearts of many people in my district. Men and women alike are united in their yearning for this tale of solidarity and loss, bravery in the face of extinction. It is presumably placed there to curry favor with the remnants of the South. But it may be that the influence of the story of Weirwood Manor will work towards quenching the flames of anger in all quarters holding the ugliest side of humanity at bay, with its most beautiful, delivering the people, heroes, to inspire us to action, will always be an infinitely more positive move than the threat of punishment for non-compliance. Change is coming. Hopefully for the better. again. What was the best you thought was going to happen when you fired up your printing press? I got a small distribution. Nothing like the Herald, but we can't compete with Hearst or that White House mandated dog and pony show, your stars and stripes. But the people who read us are threaded through society and 
key places. We're dug in. They've got the masses. We've got the thinkers. It's those people that keep ideas. You know. Unkillable. You put that out while the ink was still drying on hundreds of copies of the second edition. A book we both know America's future is contingent on. The fact that you have challenged its contents so forcibly that I bought you to see me doesn't scare you? Well, <clears throat> I'd like to go on living. But I'll chew on a bullet a thousand times over if I'm living in a society that won't allow its people to question their leaders. So, <clears throat> we've had our little moment. If you're going to have me vanish, you should probably start now. On the contrary, Raven. You may find this hard to believe, but I want you out there. And writing. I've actually been reading your publication for some time now. I'm not going to say you've got me all wrong. But the idea of a press regulated by governments or vulnerable to corruption being the only source of news our people are reading quite turns my stomach. Oh. Oh, shit. <clears throat> I thought your mustachioed thug over there was two seconds away from putting a hole in the center of my forehead. Not today, sir. Well, that's a relief. Well. So what would you like to talk about? Michael P. Anderson. Jamal Barnes. William Barnes. Delmar Harrison. Troy Kelly. Isaiah Pease. And Melvin Sweeney. Oh. The murdered Negroes. You know, it's funny. When your boys picked me up, I was just starting a report pieced together from the scraps of information I could work out of the police force. They wouldn't even let me speak to the witnesses. You'll be needing this, then. I've got a press pass. Not like this, you haven't. This effectively makes you an independent agent affiliated with but not beholden to the NIA. You have our endorsement, but you don't have to answer to us. And we're sure as hell not paying you. But that will get you through the doors that won't normally open. It's brand new, so you're going to run up against some resistance immediately. And if you get into trouble, there's information here on how to reach our support network. Hmm. And what do you get out of it? There's a truth to be uncovered here that I am not in a position to directly address. The police force is not part of the NIA, and this calls for an independent investigation. Now, we both know what you're going to do with this is dangerous as shit. But with the personal character you've shown today, I will trust you to get to the bottom of this. And ensure that these men cannot evade justice. Of course, if you'd rather carry on without it, I can just tear this up right now. No, I'll take it. It should make things interesting. Good. That doesn't mean I'm going to change one word I write about you. I have scruples. I wouldn't conceive of it. Anything else before you go get them. Yeah. Can I get an interview for the Washington Post? You got time now. Well, I didn't have anything else planned for the afternoon aside from a shallow grave in some wheat field a few miles away. Hmm. Give me my bag. Let me get my box tube set up here. 
I suppose I'll leave mine running. You know, that's government property. It was. Then the cartographer who gave it to me found himself owing me a favor. So now it's mine. Now, I haven't prepared any questions, so I'm just going to have to shoot from the hip. Director <coughs> <coughs> Arlington, what was the best you thought was going to happen after you published the second edition of the cartographer's handbook? To begin with, empathy. You have been listening to episode 11 of Arlington Remastered, The Scribe, written, edited, and directed by Alexander Shaw. Thomas W. Arlington and Raven, performed by Alex Shaw. Major Frank Butler, performed by Spencer Lieb. Battle Hymn of the Republic, performed by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. Make Your Decision by Dan Philipson of Shockwave Sound. Many Soundscapes by Tabletop Audio. And Stone Spring Maidens is now available in paperback form on Amazon.com. And if you're on our Patreon at the $10 level or higher, then access to the ebook version is part of the bonus package you receive. The New Century Multiverse is funded by Patreon. Our $15 sponsors get credit every episode, so thank you too. Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alex Outridge, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Duran Barnett, Evan Jankowski, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Gasiga, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clayson, Joseph Gluck, Kat Esman, Kevin Vey, Lorraine Chisholm, Mark Luksch, Matthew A. Siebert, Matthew Webb, Michael Hasco, Scott Jacob, Sarah Montgomery, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. <laughs>